Maybe some of you are familiar with uh, the website awkwardfamilyphotos.com. Now, just a disclaimer, parents don't just allow your children to look at it without some level of uh, watching over them. But it's this website, I think there's some board games, there's t-shirts, there's books, where people load family photos and they put a caption to go with them. And uh, they're quite funny. I got a couple examples for you. I just pulled these off the website uh, this week. Uh, Let me show you the first one here. And again, for whatever reason, people just load up their pictures and then write their caption. And so the person wrote, this is my dad dressed up as a box of contact lenses. (laughs) Apparently, my mom made this costume for a trade show and needed someone to model it. I don't understand why contact lenses would wear elf shoes, but I think it works. Another one. Always known, so see the family picture there. Always known for her unique brand of tact, my nan doctored this photo from my christening by replacing my dad's head with my sister's. Now it looks like she just cut one out and taped it on. This was done after my parents' divorce. Whenever I would ask my nan about this photo, she would say, your dad? No, I don't think he was there that day. (laughs) And then one more. I recently visited my sister. Now, this woman, the grown-up, loaded this picture herself, who shared her favorite childhood photo of me from the time I married my giant stuffed Pikachu, Ricky. (laughs) Now... Why in the world would anybody want to load these pictures on the internet for everyone to see? Now, you may be asking, well, why would you start a sermon with those pictures? Well, we've been talking about the book of Ruth. And as we've gotten to the end of the book of Ruth, you heard the story read this morning. I wondered, what would it be like if we got Ruth and sort of her family together for a family picture? it might look like an awkward family picture. What I mean by that is try to picture what this would look like in your mind's eye. In my mind's eye, I see first little baby Obed, and he's a cute little baby, uh, but he's half Jewish, half Moabite. Now, I see this cute little baby, and the person who's holding him, in my mind, is not his mom, but his grandmother. So Naomi's got this little baby in her arms and a big smile on her face, nothing unusual about that. But if you look really closely at the picture, you would notice that Obed and his grandmother don't look anything alike whatsoever. And that's because they're not related. (laughs) You see, Obed's mom is Naomi's daughter-in-law from a previous marriage. And Obed's dad is not related to Naomi at all. So here you've got this grandmother holding this little baby. They look nothing alike. I also, in my mind's eye, picture sort of standing behind grandma and baby, Ruth. Now, Ruth is a young woman, and I picture her as sort of a beautiful, strong, young woman. But it's also very clear from the picture that she's a foreigner. And so however that manifests itself, it's clear in the picture, yeah, this lady's from a different country, because she is. She's from Moab, and the story's made a big deal about the fact that she's a foreigner. Next to Ruth, maybe with his arm around her, 
is Boaz. And now in my mind, I'm picturing Boaz as probably not that attractive of a guy. He's an older man. In fact, he's probably the same age as Naomi. And when you first see the picture, you think, why is his arm around her and not around her, the one holding the baby? And he may be one of these guys that when you look at him, you think, how in the world did he end up with her as his wife? In my mind, that's this picture. And again, maybe if you looked at it without knowing the story, you would think, well, that's weird. There's something strange that went on in that family. But if you know the story behind the picture, it's beautiful. It's this beautiful story of redemption that Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, and even Obed, this picture of these four people that God has been at work in mighty and powerful ways to create this family photo. Now that's the thing with some of the awkward family photos. We laugh at them, but some of them actually reflect some pretty beautiful things that stand behind the picture. Of course, when I see them, I think to myself, what were you thinking? And that's what we often think when we see a photo, isn't it? Like, what was going through your mind when you decided to dress up as a contact lens box? Or what was going through your mind when you decided to marry your giant stuffed Pikachu? Or why did you think that your granddaughter would never grow up to notice that you had cut a face of your sister and pasted over top of her dad? What were you thinking when you did this? And that's the problem with pictures is we don't know what's going on in people's hearts and minds. Outwardly, everything looks fine. But what is the emotions and the thoughts that gave rise to what happened? The same is true with the story of Ruth. We've been looking at this story, and we see at the end of this story this great family photo. Grandson, grandma, daughter-in-law, dad. We see them all in this picture, but what the picture doesn't tell us is what are they thinking? What's going on in their hearts and minds? They've been on an amazing journey, a journey where God has brought rescue and help and restoration, but how did they feel along the way? What were the emotions that they were going through? Well, unfortunately, the book of Ruth doesn't give us all of those emotions, but there is a book in the Bible that is specifically designed to help us articulate the emotions that we experience through the difficulties of life. And that's the book of Psalms. And so about three months ago when I was laying out this sermon series on the book of Ruth, I just felt as I was praying through it, we needed some way to kind of talk about the emotions that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and more importantly, what you and I go through when we find ourselves in the desert, in the pit, in the troubles of life. And God led me to a particular psalm. It's Psalm 143. And so to this morning, instead of the book of Ruth, I'd like us to turn to the book of Psalms and look at Psalm 143. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I invite you to just grab one out of the rack in front of you. There's one there. If you take one of those Bibles, that's page 507. Just find page 507, and it'll be pretty clear, uh, Psalm 143. Now, as you're turning, let me tell you, Psalm 143 was written by David. So you heard in the story, the last person in the story is David. This is Obed's grandson. This is King David, the most famous king in Israel's history. 
So obviously, if David is writing Psalm 143, then it wasn't written at the time of Ruth. And so in one sense, it doesn't actually say what they were thinking and feeling. But the reality is Psalm 143 is a psalm of redemption, and it expresses in sort of universal language what all of us feel when we find ourselves in times of trouble and despair and difficulty. And whether that's being diagnosed with cancer, whether that's a broken relationship, whether that's financial struggles or difficulties at work, whether it is coming to grips with the loss of a loved one, whatever it may be, when we find ourselves in the midst of hard situations, we need some way to express the emotions that we're feeling. That's what Psalm 143 does. So what we're going to do is the first six verses lay out the emotions that we all feel when we go through difficult times. I'm just going to read them one verse at a time and just make a couple of comments on each verse. Begin in verse number one. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. That's essentially saying, Lord, I need help. Lord, I'm in the midst of a hard situation. Lord, come and rescue me. Lord, I need you. We sang that this morning. Verse 2. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. You know, when you go through a difficult time, every single one of us at some point thinks, did I bring this on myself? Did I do something? Am I being punished? Have I done something that's going to hinder God from helping me? Every single person thinks that at some point when bad things happen. Verse 2 says, no one who is living is actually righteous before God. Of course, we've all done things, but the point is we still need God to be merciful to us. We are not earning his help. We're begging for it. Verse 3. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. And whether the enemy is cancer or it's another person or it's Satan or it's simply life itself, we can feel crushed that whatever we're up against is just too powerful for us. It's too strong for us. We can't will our way through this. We can't fight our way through us. In fact, we're losing. And it feels like we've died already. Verse four. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. This is the sense of I'm tired. I can't keep going like this. I've moved beyond the point that I ever thought I'd be able to stand. I feel like I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the others. In some ways, the darkness, the discouragement, the anxiety, it's just too much. I don't think I can make it another day. That's verse 4. That's that feeling we're never going to get out of this. Verse 5. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. 
You know what it's like when you're going through something difficult? You tend to remember back to times when this wasn't your life. You tend to remember back to, oh, remember the good old days? Before this happened, that's verse 5. It's easy to remember back and think, I'm never going to feel that joy again. Life used to be great, and now it's terrible. Verse 6. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Perhaps for me personally, this is the most vivid imagery of all of these. Thirst. When you're thirsty, you can't think of anything else except getting a drink. And when you're really thirsty, it's debilitating. It becomes all-consuming. I must find something to drink. When you're going through suffering, you can't think about anything else. You can't think about anything else except I've got to get this to end. This has got to stop. It's all-consuming, just like thirst. It eats away at your thoughts. It wakes you up in the middle of the night. All you do is think constantly about this issue. That's verse 6. Well, in verses 7 through 12, come the response. What do you do when you feel these emotions? What should you do when you find yourself in a place where Psalm 143 is literally your words? If you're sitting here this morning saying, that's how I feel, what should you do? Verse 7, answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me or I will be like those who go down to the pit. We call out to God and we say, come quickly. No one, no one who is suffering ever says to God, yeah, sure, take your time. You're busy. You got other people to look after. I'll be fine. No, when you find yourself in the pit, when you get the diagnosis, when things blow up at work, when you can't pay the bills, the answer is, come quickly. Now, I need help today. I need you to do something. Let's not wait any longer. Remember, I'm not sure I can make it one more day or one more minute. I need you to show up now. Well, what is it that we're wanting him to do? There are three things in this psalm. Three things that the psalmist prays. Three things that we should pray and ask God for in the midst of the pit. The first one is in the first half of verse 8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. The first thing that we need from God in the middle of suffering is some tangible expression of God's love. We need some glimpse of grace, some idea that God has not forgotten about us, that God sees us, that God loves us. I imagine what, it's got to, what it had to be like to be Ruth. You heard it in the story. We've talked about it. Ruth musters the courage to actually propose to Boaz. He's not taking the initiative, so she takes the initiative to propose to him. His response at first is fantastic. You want to marry me? I would love to marry you. Woohoo! Great news. Eh, bad news. There's another guy who's got a closer claim than I do, and if he wants to marry you, there's nothing I can do about it. Now imagine if you're Ruth going home after that. He says, I'm going to go ask him, and if he wants to marry you, he's going to marry you. I can't imagine what it's like to be Ruth to go home and think, 
Am I going to get up married to Mr. So-and-so? How's this going to work? Well, just as she arrives home, her mother-in-law, Naomi, is waiting for her with a word of encouragement. And Naomi says, no, 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 don't worry. The Lord is in this. Don't worry, it's going to be taken care of. That's what we need. We need some tangible thing in the midst of the journey to let us know that God sees us, that he loves us. This week I was looking at the care pages for one of the people in our congregation. Her name is Anna. And uh, maybe three or four or five weeks ago, she was diagnosed with a very serious form of breast cancer. And uh, her care page entry from June 22nd, uh, so almost a month ago, was brought to my attention. And this is what she wrote on her care pages. Though thankful for God's kindness, I've been praying to miraculously feel God's arms wrapped around me. Not just sense his presence, but literally feel a grasp. Interesting that my prayer shawl was brought to me today. And the note partially reads, this prayer shawl will bring you a sense of God's peace, healing, and love each time you wrap it around your shoulders. Another reminder of Jesus using the body of Christ and their arms to physically love us. We have a ministry in the church where people knit prayer shawls and pray each time that they knit and then give those to people who are struggling. Hers happened to arrive on the day she was asking for some literal physical touch from God. That's what this is talking about. Just some sign, Lord, that you haven't forgotten me. Just some sign, Lord, that you love me. Some evidence of your unfailing love. Now, the reason this was brought to my attention is I want you to see what else she wrote on her care page that day, June 22nd. Anna also said, I encourage you to read through the Psalms and find your psalm, the one that most closely matches with your heart where you are in your life journey. Probably about five or six years ago, our pastor asked us to each find ours. Many years ago, I identified Psalm 143 as my psalm. And I think, what are the odds that three months ago, before Anna had even been diagnosed with cancer, while I'm away in Israel praying about this sermon series, the Lord should bring to mind out of all 150 psalms, Psalm 143, that we can speak on it this morning so that Anna, who was here in the last service, could know that God already had a sermon and a service planned for her, even before she was diagnosed. That's what verse 8 is asking for, some tangible sign that God sees us, that he loves us, that he's with us. Now, her cancer is bad, and we're praying for her. She's not out of the woods yet, but in the midst of it. This is Psalm 143, verse 8. Lord, just give me something, something to let me know that you see me. And so on the day she wanted some physical manifestation of God, he sent her a prayer shawl to wrap around her shoulders. And today, as she's getting ready and going through chemo, God said, I chose a psalm for you, and I'm going to have the whole congregation listen as you get to hear it. Maybe it's your psalm also. Maybe God brought you here this morning to tell you that he sees you in what you're going through. That's what we're asking for from the Lord. Some sign. Some sign that you haven't forgotten about me. Some sign that you're not angry with me. 
some sign that it's going to be okay. The second thing that we long for from God when we find ourselves in the midst of trouble is the second half of verse 8 and also verse 10. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Every single one of us in the midst of darkness and despair want guidance. Lord, what am I supposed to do? Suffering always, always, always brings confusion. Lord, the doctors are saying I need to go through all of these kinds of treatments. Am I supposed to do everything that they said? Should I get a second opinion? Should I do this surgery immediately? Should I wait? What am I supposed to do? Lord, things have fallen apart at work. It was going so great, and now everything is a mess. Am I supposed to go and sit down and talk with my boss? Should I not go and sit down and talk with my boss? God, this relationship that meant so much to me is falling apart. I think my husband may be cheating on me. Am I supposed to confront him? Should I do something about it? What am I supposed to do? There is no situation that you and I will find ourselves in in which we are suffering that we will not be confused. And what we want is help. It's dark. I don't know which way to go. I don't know how to walk out of this. I think of Boaz and the story of Ruth that, okay, I want to marry this woman. I can't believe she proposed. This is a dream come true. What am I supposed to do about this other guy? Should I tell him, hey, no way you can't have her? Should I offer him the land? Should I mention that she's available to be married? I need guidance. You know how this feels, don't you? I know how it feels. This is what we're longing for from God. Not only some tangible sign that he loves us, but some help, some direction. What do I do? How do I walk through this? Do I speak? Do I not speak? The third thing that every one of us needs in the middle of suffering and difficulty is in verse 9 and then also verses 11 and 12. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. For your namesake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. Not only do we need some tangible evidence of God's love for us, not only do we need guidance, but ultimately what we need more than anything else is rescue. We need the God to show up and fix the problem. I'm sure Naomi was overjoyed that Ruth happened to end up in Boaz's field. I'm sure she was overjoyed that Boaz was kind to Ruth. I'm sure she was overjoyed and saw it as a glimpse of God's grace that Ruth and Boaz got married. But at the end of the day, Naomi needs a grandson. She needs someone to give her purpose for her life, someone that she can pour her life into, someone who will take care of her when he grows up. Naomi needs God to show up and intervene and do something. Now, one of the powerful things about hearing the whole story read all at once, and if you didn't notice it in your listening today, go back and read the story. There's only one time in the entire book that God is said to do anything active. And that is he causes Ruth to get pregnant. Everything else, he's at work behind the scenes. 
But sometimes we need God to come out from behind the curtain and actually do something to rescue us. We're grateful for the grace that helps sustain us to let us know that God is with us. We're grateful for the guidance and direction, but ultimately what we're praying for, what we're begging for, what we're longing for is come fix the problem. Come help me. Come rescue me. Lord, I can't do this on my own. If you don't show up, what hope do I have? Now, sometimes that rescue comes in ways that we don't expect. This week, I went to the funeral for Edna Shore. Edna was a godly woman, a part of our congregation for a long time. And a week ago, this past Friday, so what, nine, ten days ago, actually it was Thursday night, uh, she died suddenly of a heart attack. I got the news that Edna had died, and I was stunned. Edna had been through a very difficult journey with cancer, and God had been with Edna and sustained her through it and done miraculous things to bring her through that. And so to get this news all of a sudden that she had died of a heart attack, well, it just it felt like a kick in the gut. At the funeral, however, her daughter gave a really powerful and interesting perspective. It was her daughter's take uh, that what had happened in Edna dying was actually God's rescue and mercy. Apparently, the kind of cancer that Edna had was very bad. And through God's grace, medical intervention, and Edna's own hard work, uh, the cancer had been brought into remission. But the doctors told her, when it comes back, it will be far, far worse than anything you've gone through so far. And there will be no cure. She had barely made it through the first years of experience with that. And what her daughter said was, Edna was scheduled to go into the doctor this past Monday, so what, six days ago, for her checkup. And somehow, either God had told her or she had, through intuition, she knew the cancer was back. And so her daughter's perspective was, this was God actually answering the prayer and taking her safely home to heaven. You see, we don't sometimes think about death that way. But the goal is not for you and I to avoid death forever. The goal is for God to take us safely through death to the eternal life that he has for us. The Bible says as much, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And God says, look, people don't understand. I often take people home so that they can avoid the evil in this world and the trouble that is coming, that death can be a mercy and a rescue from God. And in Edna's case, and this is what I thought was so powerful about her daughter's story, was that she recognized for Edna, she didn't need to go back through this again. All the difficulty, all the struggle, and instead, in one moment, in a quick painless heart attack. God simply took his daughter home to be to heaven with him. Now it's hard for us because we miss her. But this is what we long for ultimately is rescue. This is what we want. God, show up. Now he does it sometimes in ways that blow our mind or ways that we're not expecting. But that's ultimately what we're longing for. God, we need a solution. 
Let me tell you one more story about redemption. I began the sermon by talking about family photos, and I said, try to picture in your mind's eye what Ruth's family photo might look like. I wonder if it might look something like this. Now, in spirit, obviously, we're missing a grandma in this picture. But this picture uh, comes from a book that my mom gave me called Deep Undercover. Uh, It's a book that was written by the man on on your right, whose name is Jack Barsky. It just was released this year. It's a 2017 book. Now, he writes under the name Jack Barsky, but that's not his birth name. His birth name is Albert Dietrich, and he was born in East Germany just a few years after World War II. He was recruited by the Soviets to be a spy for the KGB. He was planted as a spy in America and worked as a spy in the 1980s and 1990s. He's probably, and I may be guessing wrong, in, his, in this picture, maybe in his late 50s or early 60s, but worked for a long time as a spy here in America. The woman that's on your left is Shauna. She's Jamaican. That's his third wife. A lot of lying in spycraft. So at one point he had two wives and two families simultaneously, one in East Germany and one in America. This is his third wife. Her name is Shauna. And she's 24 years younger than he is. So maybe a little bit like Ruth and Boaz. So when I saw this picture, uh, I thought, huh, that maybe it would look something like that. The little girl in the middle is their daughter, and her name is Trinity. And the fact that they've named her Trinity reflects the fact that although Jack spent some 50 or more years as a staunch atheist who was violently opposed to anything Christian, that one day God brought a woman, Shauna, to his workplace. Shauna was a Christian, and she worked for Jack. And I want to pick up the story uh, from the book in Jack's own words, and this is what he writes. When I asked her to share a sample of her writing, she handed me a recently completed essay on the biblical book of Ruth. I read the essay and found her writing to be fundamentally sound, but I didn't know whether it did justice to the original source. I guess I have to read the original to see if your paper makes sense. Ever the alert evangelist, Shauna produced a Bible from her bag and handed it to me. I took it home. As I sat down to read it, I realized this was the first time since my early attempt to read Genesis from Opa Alwyn's Bible that I had opened a Bible when he was a little boy. His grandparents uh, in Germany had a Bible, and he had opened it up, tried to read something out of Genesis that made no sense, and he never looked at a Bible in the 50-some years since that point until this day. As a man, I didn't find the book of Ruth to be the most inspiring text I'd ever read, but it was enough to get me interested in finding out more. When I mentioned it to Shauna, she came back with a set of CD recordings of the entire Bible, proving once again that she was prepared for any eventuality. I can listen as I drive to work, I mused, as I set the CDs next to my briefcase. That's not a bad idea. 
I decided there was no reason to be closed-minded about the Bible. After all, it was the most read book in the history of mankind. Besides, I had had enough, about enough of the shtick put out by the radio talk show crowd that I usually listen to during my hour-long commute. This was an opportunity to fill a gap in my knowledge of the world, and it would come at no additional cost in time or money. You can see both the maleness of that and perhaps the sort of detached port of view that a spy might bring to something. Now, by this point in the story, he's been caught, uh, and he's, uh, he's been, it's been revealed. So he's no longer a spy, but that kind of deception and that kind of lying and that kind of sin stays with you. Well, the story goes on is that as he began to read the Bible, he came up with all sorts of questions. And so when he had questions, he would come and ask Shauna, who worked with him, to help him. And so they set up a meeting sort of every morning, and on their calendars it said, like, logistics planning. And they met for a half hour, and he would bring his questions, and she would answer them. Now, for Jack, at the beginning, it was just an intellectual exercise. This was interesting from an intellectual point of view. But at some point, she kept inviting him to church. And so one day, he decided to go to church. And when he showed up at her church, probably a lot like this church, uh, he showed up at her church, he thought this isn't all that bad. After a couple of Sundays, he went down and he talked to the pastor and told him his story. And the pastor, I don't know, he told him all the details of the story, but he told him about his story. The pastor recommended a couple of books for him, one by a guy named Lee Strobel and one by a man named C.S. Lewis. Jack said he went home and he read those books and that began to interest him intellectually. And then he says in the book, I was becoming an intellectual Christian, but my soul had yet to connect with God. He said, then one day, out of the blue, with no, no explanation for this whatsoever, he was on a golf course, and there was something about the beauty of nature. And in that moment, he felt, and he says in his words, sort of the Spirit's presence. A couple of Sundays after that, he went to church. And it says that one day at the end of the service, as the pastor was lingering near the pulpit, a powerful but inexplicable force caused me to march down the left-hand aisle toward the front. This was not a casual stroll through the auditorium. My approach was resolute and purposeful, and the pastor quickly noticed me. When I reached the front of the room, he said, you look like a man on a mission. What can I do for you? I'm here to give my life to Jesus Christ. I told you at the beginning of the book of Ruth that Ruth is a prelude to a bigger story. That's why it ends with a genealogy. Books don't end with genealogies. They start with genealogies. And the genealogy at the end of Ruth ends with King David, but he picks up the story in the book of Matthew, and we find out that David's descendant is Jesus. And the idea is, is the story of the book of Ruth is actually supposed to function exactly like it did in Jack's life as a prelude. If you read the book of Ruth, you ought to think, well, that's interesting, but there's got to be more to the story. There is more to the story. And the story is of the God who loved Ruth and Naomi and Boaz enough to not sit idly by while their lives were falling apart is the God who sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and raised him from the dead so that we might have eternal life. Psalm 143 expresses the cry of every person's heart, but the reality of the situation is our true enemy is not cancer, or our boss at work, or our financial situation, or the vicissitudes of life. The real enemy is Satan, sin, and death. 
And the rescue that we're longing for is not just healing from our cancer. It's not just a better job. It's not just an influx of money. What we're ultimately longing for can only be provided by Jesus and it's eternal life. It's life now, but life forever. Life with a God who loves us enough to wrap a prayer shawl around us when we're lonely, to preach a sermon for everybody else to hear, but specifically for one or two or three people to hear. God who loves us enough to take a KJB spy, KGB spy and lead him to faith. Who does those kinds of things? Who takes somebody, and look, if you read that book, that guy's life was messed up. He did lots of terrible things. Who takes somebody like that from behind the Iron Curtain and gives them salvation? God does, and he does it through Jesus. And the stories that we all have, Edna's story about God being merciful and keeping her from having to go through cancer once again and simply taking her home to heaven, the reason that's possible is because of Jesus. And so my invitation to you today is maybe you're like Jack Barsky. The book of Ruth is not supposed to be the end. It's just a beginning. Why not read some more of this story? You said, well, I might have questions. I would love to answer your questions. We'll make a logistics planning meeting. We can meet together. There may be people sitting around you who would love to answer your question. It is the most read book in human history. If this morning in Psalm 143 you thought, those are some of the emotions I feel. Why not read the rest of it? Why not give God a chance? What do you have to lose? Jack started off on the journey as an intellectual journey. It's a really interesting intellectual journey. I invite you to go on it. And at some point, if God is real, he'll show you that it's more than just an intellectual journey. But salvation belongs to the Lord. He'll be the one to do it. It might be on a golf course. It might be sitting in the sanctuary of a church. You may feel even this morning... After the service, you want to come down and give your life to Jesus Christ. That's my invitation to you. All we've been doing in Ruth is a prelude to the story of what God's doing in Jesus. And my invitation to you is, have you heard enough to just read some more? Have you heard enough to find out some more? If you have, when the service is over, just come down front. You don't need to do it in front of everybody else. Nobody needs to know why you're coming down front. Just come down front. We can give you a Bible. We could give you some of those same books that Jack read. We could answer the questions that you have. Or if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, we can help you do that as well.